The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This is the second Thursday in a second in a five-week series. Uh, I'm not sure what we're really titling it, but um, it was. It's really the idea was to start at the beginning, which is hard to define what the beginning is, and go through. It's a tall order, but really do a, a, a deep overview systematized of Buddhist teachings. You know, so we get bits and pieces if you hang around and you come to groups and hear talks or you read this book or that book. We're trying to organize it so it all makes sense, it all comes together, both the teachings and, and the, the uh, practical, applying the teachings. So that's a lot. So what I would like to do is, I noticed there's a, a fair number of people who weren't here last week. I want to just do a very brief just recap from what we did last time and then we'll pick it up and tonight we'll continue on with I was going to say the theory but none of this is meant to be the theory in the sense it, it's, it's actually all meant to be uh, directly verifiable through our own experience so I will just say never than theory we'll talk, we're going to continue with the teachings or the, if you will or you could say doctrine and t- tonight we'll start to slide over into now the, the applied and the practical, and that will carry on for the, for the next three weeks. We'll also have some time to open it up for if there's questions or discussion at the end tonight. So last week we started with this idea of nirvana, that's the Sanskrit word, or in the Pali language, it's Nibbana. And that tends to be the, the goal in, in Buddhism, right? To realize or attain Nibbana. And at least in the early Buddhist, this is what I'm, uh, in later Buddhist schools, what I'm about to say is not so true, if, if you hang around with the Tibetans or some of the Zen schools. But in er, the early Buddhist schools, which is what the Pali language tradition in this center comes out of, The Buddha didn't, he pointed towards this Nibbana, but but because it is beyond the limits of our conceptual mind, it's beyond verbal categorization, he would point to it and use these adjectives that kind of pointed, but really wasn't saying much about about it, even though it's a big deal in traditional Buddhism. If you come to centers like this, it may not get talked about very much because, as we'll see, not so much tonight, but later on in the series, what's really important is how we're living our lives here and now. That's what it's really all about, whether we have some idea of Nibbana or not. It all comes back down, just very concrete, into the present moment in our lives. But anyway, there is this thing, Nibbana, and the reason I bring this up as a starting point is that because whatever that might be, this final highest enlightenment, if, if, even if there is such a thing, some people, depending on your view about it, because it's ineffable, it's beyond concepts, if you will, the Buddha spent almost all of his time talking about and teaching 
about what is practical, what we can actually know and get our hands on, how we live and think and act and be, and the quality of our lives. He was teaching truths of what we would call conventional reality, what we can know, how we can live in ways that head us towards the deepest or the highest, if you will. So you sh- and so everything we're talking about, as you'll notice, it's not metaphysics. It's not meant to be speculative or blind belief or faith. Um, it's really meant to, everything we're talking about is meant to be investigated for ourselves and can be known directly for ourselves. And so then we spent most of the time last uh, week talking about, well, what it, when we look around at the world, at our lives, at all of our experience, what is it that we see is true? And we were talking about what is called the three characteristics of all experience, or sometimes they're called the three characteristics of existence, of, of any, anything. The first of these was impermanence, saying that everything, right, and we know this intellectually, Right? Everything's impermanent. Nothing lasts. We won't last. The earth doesn't last. We'll come back again to this uh, this evening. But that we spent a lot of time talking about impermanence. Second is what is... Um, generally, people translate the term as suffering. That, 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 and, and that's where people think the Buddha said life is suffering. But uh, well, again, we're going to come back to that again tonight too. But it's, it's more. It's this Pali word, dukkha that meant um, there's an unsatisfactory quality to experience. And as we'll see, even getting what you want, well, we'll come back to that. Well, let's just say suffering for now, but we want to make sure we understand what we mean. Impermanent suffering. And the third is where we're going to pick up tonight is uh, a real sticking point in Buddhism, no self. That's a big one, right? And most people, all of us, would say, well, it's, that's hard to get a handle on what it means. We want to explore that a little tonight because we all, we're, it doesn't mean we don't exist, right? We all exist. We all have a sense of self. So we, we need to get clear on what that means. So anyway, there was these three characteristics. Um, the re, one of the reasons for reflecting on those three characteristics was because we find ourselves, I'll just say we're in, how we got here, I don't know, but here we are in, well, in the human condition. And this is the situation we find ourselves in. Right? So impermanence, when you really reflect on it, um, um, it can weigh heavily on us if it's not understood properly, right? Nothing, no ex- nothing we do is going to last no fruits of our labors will last. We won't last forever. No experience, even if you could set your life up to be perfect, dream, ideal life, which we're not denying that that wouldn't bring a lot of benefits. But ultimately, it's not going to do it for us because it won't last. If nothing else, we, we don't live forever. So these are the reflections we spent time on last week. So tonight I want to explore this third one of no self to get at least intellectually clear about it. A lot of meditation practices to come to an experiential 
of it, but at least we can understand it. And then we'll go into the Four Noble Truths tonight to, uh, to understand that we need to understand the three characteristics to, to really understand the Four Noble Truths. And then we may start in on what's called the Eightfold Path, and that starts to get into the practical application of these teachings. So this third characteristic, this is, this is central in Buddhism, this idea of no self. So to start, I'm going to present a model that Buddhism uses to deconstruct what it is to be a human being. You don't have to memorize this or remember it, but if you just heard it, it's fine. If you hang around any Dharma scene long enough, you'll hear this talked about many, many times, and it will stick. So you don't have to memorize all this. But, so it's an, there's a lot of these terms, there's these lists. There's the four this, the eight that. And sometimes Buddhism is called the religion of lists. <laughs> and there are actually lists of lists. It just goes on and on. Some of that, by the way, had to do with how the teachings were preserved. In the early days, just, let's just pause for a moment on a little bit of history. Uh, uh, um, it was an oral tradition, so people weren't writing this down at the time of the Buddha, at least as far as we know. And all the teachings were, were um, trans, retained and transmitted as an oral tradition. Um, and so the, the monastics would come together, monks and nuns, and would, each group would have responsibilities for memorizing certain pieces, and they would chant them together in groups. And, and, and so if one person forgot something, the group could keep it corrected. And uh, it was actually because they didn't have printing presses, and uh, hand scribing was so prone to error, it was actually considered a pretty good, reliable way of, of transmitting the teachings. This, these, all this wasn't written down until several centuries after the Buddha died, and then it was written, the, the earliest we know is in Sri Lanka on palm leaves. They inscribed it. Anyway, so you can, you can see because of that system, using lists like that could be an aid to memorization and retaining things. So that's maybe part of the reasons why it was, there's so many lists. So try not to let it bother you too much. Just, you know, you get used to it. So here's another list of five. It's called the five aggregates. And it's a way of describing ourselves, our own being, breaking it down into five different parts. There could be other ways you could have arranged this. This just happens to be one. It doesn't have to be the only one. But it's, and so we'll talk about what it is and, and why it would, we would want to even think of ourselves in these terms. So let me just give you the brief overview. It's basically mind and body. So the first of the five is the body. So I don't need to say much more about that. We have bodies, right? The second... The, the, the next four are all what we would call the mind, but they break out certain aspects of the mind. Um, I'm going to give it to you not in the traditional order that it's given. I can tell you the order if you want to know, but I'm going to give it kind of mix up the order for certain reasons. Um, one of, actually the last in the five is consciousness itself, just just, just pure consciousness. That's the aspect. We are conscious. We're aware. 
So we've got the body, we've got consciousness. There's other things going on in the mind other than just the fact of consciousness. There's content to our mental experience. Uh, one, One aspect is what's called perception. And it's perception, if you're interested in sanya in the Pali language, you don't need to know any Pali, uh, perception is the quality. Well, actually, I'll do an experiment to, to more direct experiential. Let me hold this up so you can all see. I'm holding this up here. Anybody want to say what you see? Anyone? Bowl. What was that? You say hand, bowl. Yeah. Okay. It was a trick question. Not really a trick question, but of course that's what we're going to say. Everybody's going to say bowl or hand or everything. You don't see bowl and you don't see hand. What's happening is different shapes or patterns or landing colors, if you will, are landing on the eye. And the brain is interpreting that as bowl, hand. But you're not seeing that. You're just getting shapes or patterns, light, Right? Yeah? Everybody with me? So that function that can take this mass of visual input, but not just visual, it can come in through any of the senses. Let's just do another quick experience. Let's listen for a moment to the street. Waiting for a car to come by. Anyway, if you heard a car come by, you would say, car, right? But really you just hear kind of a sound go by, right? That's what you hear. That's not car. The mind, so it has a, it has a function of memory because we, we've seen this before and we know we, have a, we can put a label on it. So it's what takes all the input and puts it together and creates our experience. There are people who have certain diseases or brain injuries and strokes that actually lose the ability to do that where sense inputs coming in, but it can't get assembled into to know this is a room or people and everything. So it's just, and actually lose connection with no ordinary way of connecting in the world. They've lost that, what we're calling perception. Okay. This is important. You're not going to go around thinking about this every moment, but it's actually saying that we're actually creating our experience of the world. We don't notice that we're doing that, but in fact, that's happening. So if you, and if you have any, let me just pause, any questions? We don't have the mics here, or, but uh, this is being recorded, right? Yeah, so it's not going to get recorded, but okay with everyone? You got, you got it? Okay, that's perception. It's, a, it's just a mental function that's happening. Another one of the five aggregates is what's called feeling. If you're interested in the Pali language, it's Vedana with a V. Sometimes you'll hear it pronounced Vedana because the Burmese, with a Burmese accent, Pali is the Vs are pronounced with the Ws, but in standardized international, it's a V, so V or W, Vedana or Vedana. Feeling, but it's not feelings in the sense that we normally like think of it as our moods or our emotions. You know, I'm feeling happy or sad. It has a very specific meaning of pleasant, unpleasant, or if sometimes an experience will be kind of in between the two, we call it neutral, but it's actually neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So what we're saying is for every experience that comes through any of our senses, there'll be the experience itself, 
And in addition to the experience itself, there's the fact that it's, the ple- it's either pleasant, it's unpleasant, or kind of in between. Right? We call that fe- feeling. It's another thing going on all the time. And then the last, this is not in order again, is sometimes called mental formations. We'll just leave it at mental formations right now or volitional formations. It's just all this other stuff going on in the mind. Everything else we'll just put in that category. You're having thoughts and impulses and intentions. There's just so much else going on in the mind. We lump it all into there. And so when that particular model Anything in your experience of your mind and body, I don't think you'll be able to find anything that's outside of that. Again, we could, they could, have, we could have come up with another way to deconstruct ourselves as beings, but that's this particular list called the five aggregates. Now I'll give them to you in order, just so you hear it one more time. The body. Second, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Third is Perception. So we're assembling this rush of sense input into make some sense out of it, create the sense of the world that's happening. Fourth is the mental formations, all the other stuff in the mind. The fifth is just consciousness itself. Okay, so now let's just do a little inquiry together. We all know that our bodies are impermanent, right? Everybody know that, I hope. We don't have to spend too much time on that. Now, I, granted, we don't live our lives as if it's true. This is getting more into kind of the problem, as we'll see in a bit, and where practice, Dharma practice, it becomes important, right? But, you know, if you're clinging to your body being young, well, it's either suffering or it's a setup for, for future suffering because... In, um, if you don't know it now, let me tell you, <laughs> you will lose your youth. <laughs> right? So if I'm clinging to, to the body in any way, it's, it's a setup. So it's good, that's the reason why we'd want to see that the other body's impermanent. Okay? A lot of practices are reflections on this. So we know that the body's permanent. It's, okay? Let's look at the, all the aspects of the mind. Feeling, pleasant comes and goes, unpleasant. You know, there's such a range of experience. Have you ever had a pleasant experience that, that, that didn't go away? No. Now, we can have chronic pain, and it feels like something that go away. So, that, yeah, but, you know, so I want to be respectful of, the, of, of that for anyone who's dealt with it. Um, but, you know, all pleasant, unpleasant, they're, they're not permanent. They're changing. Perceptions change, Right? That's not permanent, that function of the mind. Have you ever seen there's, um, what was that artist saying? Maybe Escher, I think, where you know, you'd look and, it, and the same drawing, it would either be a young woman or an old woman, depending on how you shifted your mind, your, your, your eye or whatever. That's, your perception just changed. So perceptions just change. Do I need to spend more time with everybody just got that? We're going to, yeah. Mental formations, all the stuff in the mind, we know that's, Again, we forget, but if you actually take a look, it's just changing all the time. Right? Thoughts are coming, intentions, impulses, just all the content, moods, emotions, everything, it's coming and going. So, so far, it's easy to see that everything that we've deconstructed in this model that we would, as part of ourself, is impermanent. 
There's no permanent, it's, it's to any of it, it's just coming and going. Well, now we get to the last, consciousness. Oftentimes, that's the one where people, oh, well, that's, that's the, the deeper me. Whatever it is, that which knows, that's the real permanent self, consciousness. Yeah? Well, let's take a look at it for a second. Anyone here ever been under uh, anesthesia, total anesthesia? Yeah. Where was consciousness when you're under anesthesia? Anyone? For those who haven't had anesthesia, I've been under several times. As a matter of fact, just um, about, it's been almost two years ago, I had shoulder surgery, uh, rotator cuff tear and everything. So, and um, I, w- I was, uh, um, they had a drip in my arm, but I was out. And I thought, all right, I've been under general anesthesia before. I said, okay, this time... I'm going to really pay attention. I'm just going to keep my awareness, my concentration strong, my mindfulness strong, and I'm just going to stay with it right up and notice myself going out and everything. So the anesthe- I'm on the table. The anesthesiologist puts, says, okay, you're going to f- feel the poke, pokes. And she goes, now the, the drip's going to come in. And it's going to feel cold, and, and, and I felt it. And she goes, now I want you to count backwards from whatever it was, 10 or 100 or something like that. So I said, okay, this is it. And so I was there with it, and I'm going... You know, whatever, 10, 9. I'm waking up two hours later. It's like, I don't know what happened. It was as if the existence switch was flipped to off. Where was consciousness then? We could theorize about it all day long. Oh, it was the... No, no. We're just... I'm not that interested. It might be interesting to speculate and do that sometime just for fun, but from a Dharma perspective, it's, it's, not what we're, it's not so useful. Right? Consciousness, whatever it was, it certainly shifted and changed. It wasn't permanent. Consciousness itself, that even which knows itself, is not permanent. Ever been in deep, dreamless sleep? You know, your head hits the pillow and you wake up a few hours later. You know, you, you weren't, you know, what was happening in consciousness? Don't know, because you weren't around to, you weren't conscious to, to, to know. So it shifted. What the teaching on, so now we're ready to say, what's this teaching about no self? What this teaching is saying is, and this is a part that we can investigate for ourselves, a lot of what we are doing in meditation is, is coming to know the nature of our own minds and bodies is. It's not that we don't exist. It's, it's more saying, what's the nature of our being? Not that there isn't a being. And the way one person said it, which I liked it, is uh, trying to be a little humorous, said, we see that we're not nouns, we're verbs. That what we are is Change, uh, we're a changing process, a conscious process. Or the image I like is a river of being. So if you, t- as a matter of fact, that image works great. So if you take a river, you know, you go look at the river and you come up one day and you sit and you're there and you're hanging out and you see it and you, that's the river. You go home, you come back the next day and you come back and you say, there it is, it's the same river I was here yesterday. But actually, if you look closely... There's nothing about it that's the same. It's, 
the water, none of the water is the same. Over time, you may not notice it in one day, but right, uh, the sediment comes and you know, the, the bottom is changes. Some gets washed out in a flood or more gets deposited. The, the banks get eaten away or it's not the same. If there are sticks and leaves floating, there's really nothing about the river that's the same. But in, in the conventional sense, so in an ultimate sense, it was just a changing, everything's changed out, but we still say it's the same river. Or another example, like, um, right, it's the, uh, probably most of you know, some of you may not, if, if you don't pay attention, the uh, San Francisco Giants uh, are uh, in the World Series. There's a game tonight. They were up uh, two, I don't care that much about uh, baseball, but I did notice that even someone like, like myself actually gets a little bit into it when the whole Bay Area is into it. So I was listening to the game coming in and... They were up two to nothing in the top of the eighth. So, yeah. So they're they're up two, they're up they're up in the series two games nothing for the for those of you who care. So there you go. So there's a lot of people, depending on where you live, either elated or dejected tonight, or neither elated nor dejected. That's what would be in between, right? Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So, um, but you look at a team like the San Francisco Giants. Well, that team's been around since, what, the 50s? Is that right? I'm looking to you, yeah, something like that. But are any of the players the same? No. Not the same manager, not the same owners. I'm assuming their uniforms have changed, the stadiums. There's actually nothing of the, that's the same. The name has continued, right? But you get the point I'm making? It's all slowly changing out. They say... Uh, some of you may correct me if I may not have it exactly right, but I think if you look in, in the human body, I've heard something like every seven years, everything has been changed out. It's either every cell or every atom or what. It's all been changed out. There's nothing that's here now that was there. But we still say, well, that's me, same me. That's what we're talking about when we say no self. It's saying there's no... There's no permanent Richard in here to whom all this is happening. We are just the process. We're processes. Okay. So I can keep saying it in different ways, but you kind of get the idea about it. We're, we're rivers of being, conscious processes. And just as an aside, um, this is maybe getting a little off, but I think it might be a little illuminating. In the Pali language, this word that we translate as no self or not self or selflessness is anatta. In the Sanskrit, it's anatman. Well, going back to more of the Hindu-oriented coming out of the Upanishads, and, and this is the culture that the, that the Buddha was living in, there was this idea of the highest reality was, was called Brahman, it's not Brahma, which is, which is a god, but uh, Brahman. And it would be like the, the, the described as pure consciousness, pure existence itself. It, it would be the Hindu equivalent of God, if you will. It's the, the ground of being or existence from which all arises. That would be a way to think about that concept of Brahman. And then each person in, in that understanding has their soul, which is called Atman, and if you really see, ultimately, there's Atman and Brahman are identical. 
And the characteristic of it, it's e eternal and unchanging. Atman. And if you put in the A in front, anatman, the A is a negation, no atman. So in Pali, the atta, anatta, it's saying no atta. That's really what the term means. It's saying no eternal, unchanging essence. That we are just processes. So I don't want to get off into this too much. One last piece is people would say, well, but does that mean if the ending of, if there's no fight, we're just processes, then it goes away and that's the end of existence? The Buddha was, if you, if you, the Buddha was not saying that the ultimate reality was uh, non-existence, which would be nihilism. And he wasn't saying it's eternalism. He was saying neither of those were accurate. So what he's really doing is, and, and we, uh, this is beyond the scope of this class, but really the Buddha, when he was talking about anatta, he's saying, every, remember we're talking about conventional reality that you can get your hands on, that you can experience and know. Anything you can know and experience is, is impermanent. This question of, well, is there some deeper essence? We're just not going there in these teachings. It's just left. We don't want to get into metaphysical speculation. What the Buddha is saying is we don't want to cling or identify with what we can know, which is these five aggregates, which are just uh, uh, impermanent processes. Does this all make sense? Okay, so we'll have a little time if it doesn't make sense. Okay. Okay. What's the purpose of reflecting like this about these three characteristics? Well, I think it will be become clear because I want to move now into what's called the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is traditionally a first place to start to look at Buddhist teachings. But I feel that you need to understand the three characteristics to really understand the Four Noble Truths. So, another list. Here's the four. Um, let me say what, the, what they are and then explain a little about them. Again, if you don't remember it, you don't have to memorize it. If you want to write it down, that's fine. Some of you are. Um, but anyway, don't feel pressured about it. The first is what's generally translated as the noble truth of suffering. I'm going to explain that because it's actually not a very good way to talk about it. But everybody uses the term suffering, so we're stuck with it. We're going to use the term suffering. But we want to be clear what we mean. Truth of suffering. Second is the noble truth of what is the cause of suffering. Third noble truth is that there is an end to suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path, which is a path of practice that leads to the end of suffering. Okay. There's suffering, a cause of suffering, there is an end of suffering, and there's a path called the eightfold path that leads to the end of suffering. That's the four noble truths. So what I'd like to do now, tonight, is... An, I can feel myself speeding up a little. You know, this is, this is an ambitious project. We've got to do this here. But I want to do the, four, the, the first three noble truths and then just say that we're going to next time start in on the Eightfold Path and then it's getting all the practicality. All the meditation practices are in there. Every practice, everything's in the Eightfold Path. All right. First noble truth so we mentioned this last time, one of the three characteristics is what, what's translated as suffering. The word in Pali is dukkha, and actually dukkha is not a bad word to know. 
if you're going to pick up a little poly here and there, that's one that would be good to know. Duke, it's like Dharma is, is a word you hear. Um, Dharma is actually the Sanskrit, Dhamma and Pali. Dukkha is the word we translate as suffering, but it's actually not a good single word to convey the real meaning for dukkha. And last week we said that if you went back to the root meaning, the etymology of the word dukkha, it has the meaning of a wheel of a cart that's out of kilter, you know, the axle's off. And so as it's going around, it's, you're getting a bumpy ride. So the word dukkha does... So the Buddha didn't say life is suffering. It's actually not accurate. He said life is dukkha. It includes suffering so we can look into our own lives. It's worth examining. When you really take a look, what percentage of the time is your mind engaged with some kind of stress or worry or am I okay or am I going to be okay or what, you know, or just, you know, where we're not just at peace. For most people, when you really pay attention, it's a lot. It's going to vary for all of us. So that may not be true for everybody. So it's not for, you have to, we have to look into our own minds. Start to pay attention to what's going on in your mind moment to moment. It could be shocking. <laughs> Just notice for yourself. But we're all in the same boat, so don't beat yourself up about it. It's like, you, you know, we're all, everybody's laughing, not everyone, but, you know, out of recognition. So, that, so there's physical suffering when we have illness, when we hurt ourselves, uh, when we have loss, pain. You know, there's lots of ways to look at suffering, physical, mental, emotional suffering. So that's, that's a big piece of it for sure. But there's another piece to dukkha too, which is because of the, uh, the other characteristic of all experience, impermanence. Even getting what you want is considered dukkha in the sense, if we use dukkha to mean unreliable or unsatisfactory. Unreliable in the sense that we all know whether we're consciously doing it or it's unconscious, every one of us is trying to head our lives in the direction we want it to go in, right? We want to have more of the experiences we want, more pleasant experiences. We want to have less of what we don't want in life, right? That's just being a human being. You're not doing anything wrong, but it's just naming the situation we find ourselves in. Right? We keep trying, and sometimes you get what you want. Sometimes you don't. In other words, how much can control... You don't have total control over life. There's, there's an unreliable aspect to it. Right? Sometimes we just... Listen, some days I wake up and something just hurts for no apparent reason. <laughs> and it didn't ask me my opinion. It just went right on ahead and did whatever it wanted. Right? So there's that aspect to life that can happen. So it's unreliable and unsatisfactory in the sense that Using the example I said earlier, even if you could have your ideal life, had a great life, you didn't have that much suffering and things were going pretty well. It's satisfying on one level, but it's not ultimately going to do it for us or solve our problem, be satisfactory, because nothing lasts forever. This is the situation we find ourselves in when the Buddha says the first noble truth of life, life is dukkha. It's either outright suffering at the very least, it's got an unreliableness 
an unsatisfactory quality. Another way to think about, which some of you will relate to and some of you may not, but one thing that's common is people can have a feeling sometimes, oftentimes, of this isn't it. You know, I, don't, I may not know exactly where life's heading or what I want it to be, or it may be a vague, nebulous sense, but it's not this. Something's missing. We're not fulfilled or not, you know, that, that can be the ad aspect of life and always kind of moving to, towards what we think is going to do it for us, right? That's dukkha. If you notice that aspect in your life, that's... Right? Sometimes we don't notice that it's there, but we're not paying attention. So all of these, is just... It, Buddha's not trying to be pessimistic. He's just asking us to look and see for ourselves. Here's what he's saying is a truth of... A no, noble truth, look for ourselves and see if it's true in our own lives. So a lot of that is an investigation for us to see. First noble truth. Okay. And, and by the way, the whole uh, purpose of Dharma practice, that one of the big, uh, um, I guess it's, it's, it's a great question, or it could be a koan, if you will, or the, the, the great adventure we're all engaged in is, it's not that life's going to change if these are characteristics of all existence itself. Life is what it is. You know, when we have loss in our lives, it hurts. And I want to be respectful and say for all of us, it is going to be painful. I'm not saying that we're not going to feel it. But really, it's not anything going wrong. We think something's going wrong. It's just how it is. When you get old... You know, I remember it wasn't that many years ago. I looked in the mirror. I'm, I turned 58 this weekend. And I look in the mirror and it's just like, you know, who's that old guy? Where did my youth go? What happened? Nothing went wrong. And I knew ahead of time. <laughs> it's just what happens. So the, this is getting a little ahead now, but the big question is, can we come to a place of well-being or peace or happiness, and we can use terms we'll explain later, freedom, liberation, a, a place of refuge in the midst of the human condition, of the way life is? That's what Buddhism's trying to point to. Remember, the, the third noble truth, there's an end of suffering. So first we have to look at the problem, but that you don't stop there or else you're de- too depressed. So don't leave for five more minutes because we have to get to (laughs) that's the first noble truth so you have to look for yourself the second noble truth what's the cause of so if we use the word suffering we want to know that we mean it in a broader sense you see now while we have to understand the three characteristics to we have to understand the, the characteristic even of ourselves as beings this no self because that falls into it too is we are not permanent The second is, what's the cause of suffering? And it's clinging. Some people, this is another one that's, uh, I'm sorry, the first noble truth is the suffering comes from clinging. Excuse me. Clinging means we're holding on. We're having some problem with the way things are. It's not, the first noble truth contains more than just there's this unreliable, unsatisfactory, or even outright suffering nature. Excuse me, I I didn't mean to leave this out. This is crucial to the teaching. It's saying, that's just the way life is. It's that we we make a problem. 
It's that our well-being and happiness is caught up in having or not having certain experiences. And Buddhism's having us make a shift in not so much having it be about what is the experience that we're either having or not having, but how are we relating to whatever it is that's actually happening. It's a real shift. And the whole teaching could be thought of finding the place of, you know, it's this cliche that we, of, of inner peace. It's a cliche because we say it so much, but it's really so important. That's not just completely dependent on circumstances, but can rest at peace in the midst of this changing experiences of life, even the ups and downs. And it's quite possible to, to have the mind and the heart be quite at peace and free, if you will, even if what's going on is unpleasant. So this is kind of where Buddhism's heading. Okay. So it's the clinging, which is mean we get fixated or, you know, I've got to hold on to the pleasant or get more. Or if it's unpleasant, it's like our immediate reaction is, get this away from me. That's the clinging, if you will. The second noble truth is the cause of that clinging is, is craving. The, or you could say the cause of the dukkha, the suffering is craving. Um... It's really what causes us to cling. Craving just, and this is another, this is also misunderstood. People think Buddhism saying desire is bad, but it's not saying desire. Matter of fact, healthy, wholesome desire is important. If you didn't desire to act in ways that were skillful and what you wouldn't do it, it's not desire, it's craving. The word in Pali is tanha, which actually means thirst. So if I'm, I don't know. I listen to, you know, using that example of the baseball game. Listen to the game. If it's going your way, you're happy. If it's not going your way, you're unhappy, assuming it's something you care about. If not, it could be anything. And you, you could still feel it, whatever, enjoy, be disappointed. And you turn off the radio or whatever, and, and you just let it go and move on. It's not a big deal. You know, if you're still, you know, crying about it tomorrow if you're with the other team is the whatever the Texas Rangers that's some clinging it's coming out of a craving right. so these are little examples I'm not criticizing but we want to look at the place that caused the real suffering in our lives right. Right. craving has got to have or cannot have this right if there's something going on in your experience for which you are not able to be just at peace and you're not able to change it, you're going to suffer. I mean, right? Another way to think of Dharma practice is widening the range. One way I think about it, I have an image of a circle. And we, we already talked about no self, but so we're going to use, anyway, us, whatever the us is, kind of sits in the middle. And the circle contains the full range of experiences for which we can just be totally at peace, happy, free, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We feel it, we experience it, we're not disconnected from our experience, but it's not bothering us. If the, if the, if the experience gets too intense, in other words, it's crossed outside the boundary of the circle, then if it's pleasant, we just get swept up in it. Or if it's unpleasant, you know, we're suffering. And in those cases, we, um, you know, that's where we, we can get into trouble and suffering. 
And you could, I tend to think of Dharma practice as just widening that circle to contain more and more of the experience of our lives for which we're just not getting jerked around by things. We walk around with this place of, of peace. Peace is not dull, dullness. Place, you could say happiness, refuge, freedom. You can, there's lots of adjectives we could point to. This is that Nibbana that was getting pointed towards. Um, and more and more, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, um, and we're okay. And maybe ultimately, perhaps if it's the mind of a Buddha, I don't know, I'm just speculating, maybe there's no edge. <laughs> so this is kind of pointing to what practice is about. So first noble truth of dukkha, and the cl- cause really the problem is the clinging. Second noble truth, um, why do we cling? The mind's c- c- habituated to cling because of craving. Third noble truth, there's an end to this whole process. There's a way out. In the midst of being human beings, you don't have to go, you don't have to go in a cave and become a, an ascetic. You can just have your life. In the midst of our lives can we start to learn to come to some freedom and peace and happiness instead of just being jerked around by our desires and our emotions and by circumstances? Because if our happiness and well-being is completely at the effect or the mercy of our situations, it really is um, a tenuous position to find ourselves in. It's out of our hands and it's up to the way the winds of life blow or, you know, they'll say the vicissitudes of life. And they get to that point, that part of life has an inherently unreliable quality, aspect to it. If we take control of the situation, that's not the best way to say it, because we're not trying to be in control, we're trying to be relaxed and spacious and kind of, kind of a, a place of happiness that we can carry with us. But then we can meet situations, the ups and downs, the difficulties, and we have some equanimity. Rather than being reactive, we can be responsive. Our hearts can stay open. This is getting more into the practice side later on. But, you know, our hearts can stay open in love and compassion. Not dependent on how other people are being so much. And our minds can rest at peace and our hearts can... We can have quiet minds and open hearts and carry on with our lives. And in fact, you'll find, many of you will know this, that you actually experience your life more fully because rather than being in reaction and everything, we're just really present so you experience both the pleasant and more ple- and unpleasant more deeply. And we see the nature of things, that things are rising and passing away, including our own being. And we are at peace. Yeah. So, that's kind of a whirlwind last week and this week through the teachings, but hopefully you get the basic idea. And then we have the fourth noble truth is saying, there's a, this path, the Eightfold Path, uh, and we'll really we'll pick that up next week. We'll do the Eightfold Path, and it will lead into lots of different practices and all of that. Why do we need to practice? Because of one last piece I want to mention, and then we'll have just a, a very brief, if there's any comments or questions. Because, you know, you, you have to see for yourself what I was saying, how you relate to it, if it rings true or not for you, we each have to see for ourselves. Right? But say 
you, you, you kind of say, yes, that makes sense. And we say, okay, don't cling. You can do it in a given moment, but as soon as the right conditions come together, you're just, you can't do it. You can't. Our minds aren't trained. We've had a whole lifetime, and if you believe in Buddhist, but you don't have to believe in any of this, but sort of the Buddhist um, cosmology, you know, multiple lifetimes even. Many people don't believe in that. You don't have to, but uh, of conditioning our minds in a certain way, which is want more pleasant, get rid of unpleasant. That's right. We've been doing it our whole life, so it's deeply habituated in us. So it can take time as we start to change any habit. Ever tried to change a habit? In the beginning, it can be hard. Once it gets wired in more, it can become less work. It's not so hard. In fact, it, become, it becomes more of a trait. And then it's just not a changing a habit anymore. We've just reconditioned how our minds operate. So a lot of it is working on how the conditioned patterns of our mind. More... That's just more about that when we get into practice itself. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes. Could you even just um, really quickly say the eight? Um, what the eightfold path is? I just don't even go into detail. Yes, I could. Are you? Are you not going to be here next time, or you just want to know, huh? Yeah. I'm just curious. Right. Um, they start with the word right, but um, I'll explain that next time. But we just, you translate, we, we're going uh, it means wise or skillful. I won't explain it. I'm just going to say them. Uh, right view, or what's sometimes called right understanding. Second is right thought or right intention. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Yes? Um, what was the, uh, brief, briefly if possible, what was the difference between um, desire and craving? Well, it's, it's the difference between desire and craving, you, you could look at it as just a matter of, of degree is probably the easiest way to think of it. So sometimes people will say, they'll use an example, say, well, wait a minute, is any desire wrong? I mean, what if I'm walking down the street and, I don't know, I see a beautiful flowering plant, a bush or something, and it smells good and it's beautiful. And so there's something pleasant there and you're drawn toward it. So that is true. There's some, and there's, it's desire, I guess. It may not be that big of a desire, but it may be a little bit. And you go up and you smell the plant and you enjoy the beauty, you feel it, and you move on. Right? That would be an example of desire, but you know, just something pleasant. You, came, you had a desire to go up, if you will. But it's not a big deal. You let it go and you move on. So it's not, it, it, you, we can see there's lots of levels of desire. When desire gets very strong, it's got a power that can take us over. And it not only can really pull us, but it can, it can cloud our perceptions. You know, for example, any of you have ever been in relationships in the early stages, if there's a lot of chemistry or a lot of in love going on, and there can really be a lot of passion and desire, right? So that, could, that would be a very strong desire. And it can also color your perception, you know, all the, the little 
things that in the first two months were cute and endearing, you know, six months later, they're the things that are annoying, right? Or whatever. I'm just trying to make a point. So it's, it can, you know, it just can color, it can color our perceptions when it's very strong. So think of it as the, it's, it's talking about when it's strong. We don't have a choice. We don't have freedom anymore. Any other comments or questions? Yeah. What, I want to ask you something. What, what is, um, if you have, like I right now, I have this skin thing with the itching. Yeah. Pulls you into yeah. that. Does, is that desire or getting away from that? Well, yeah. I mean, look, if you've got... So you're saying you have strong itching happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I think probably we can all relate to that that's, that's it's unpleasant. Yes. It's probably quite unpleasant itching, and it's not so easy just to, right? So it's going to pull you, and you're going to want to get rid of it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, we could say, I don't know if it's so strong that you may or may not put the word suffering on it. That's a strong word that we, it's a catch-all we use for a wide, a broad range of intensities, but it's unpleasant experience. You want to get rid of it. So, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't it true that if you're able to relieve the itching, so you change the experience itself, that's of course, you want to take care of it. I don't know if it's a whatever. You don't, you don't need to go into detail if it's a condition or if you're just something going on or whatever, a rash. You know. So we want to take care of it, get rid of it. If you're not able to make the itching go away, how is it for you? Hard to be with? Very hard and you can't get away. Right, right. You have to be with it and you really have to concentrate. Yeah. It's hard, but right. it's a good test. Right. So what I would say is you're pointing to um, an extreme case not extreme, but a strong case that it would be possible to, if, if, if you're not making a problem about it, it's still going to feel the sensation of the itching. You're also going to have a body sensation. You're going to have the, that feeling tone, in this case, unpleasant. There might be a lot of things going on in the mind. There's going to be a lot going on around it. And it's going to feel unpleasant. And this is another thing. If we, if we, if we let go of clinging around something. Unpleasant doesn't magically turn into pleasant. It's still unpleasant. And maybe, maybe I can just leave it with this, with this image. Uh, maybe this will be a good closing because we're going to be up against the clock. Uh, a very important uh, image that the Buddha uses is what's called the two arrows or the two darts. And the Buddha was was talking about the distinction between someone who was, we could, well, let's just say an enlightened, fully enlightened person, let's say a Buddha, and just an ordinary person. And the Buddha said, everyone, it doesn't matter, you're a Buddha, you're a regular, ordinary person, everyone experiences what it is to be a human being, and that includes pain and suffering. Right? The Buddha himself you know, had, a bad, had a bad back. Sometimes he had to lie down and have his, had his attendant, Ananda, he said, tell him, you have to go give the Dharma talk, I have to lie down, my back hurts. Uh, you know, he was, a, he was a human being, right? He got old and died. So everybody experiences dukkha. It's like being shot with an arrow. You feel the pain of it. An ordinary person adds another level of suffering because they contract around it. They can't be with it. They create a problem about it. It's like being shot a second time with a second arrow. There's the unpleasantness itself and then our inability to be at peace 
in the midst of it. And so now we have mental suffering, say, in, uh, on top of it. It's like being shot with a second arrow. Enlightened person, they're only shot once. They feel the dukkha, but they're not, they're not creating really a suffering around it, if you will, because they're not creating a problem. They just see that pleasant, unpleasant rot comes and goes. Sometimes you're experiencing pain, sometimes happiness, you know, and they're, and they're, and they're not getting too wound up when it's pleasant. They still feel it all, experience it. They're not being too depressed. If, you know, if you're, um, these teachings on impermanence, we love them when we're feeling, experiencing something difficult. <laughs> we appreciate or really love the teachings on impermanence if what we're experiencing is difficult. Because we know, ah, I'm going to be able to get rid of this. And we don't like the, the teachings on impermanence when everything's going great. So, that helps. That really helps yeah. what I think of the impermanence. Yeah. Right. These are just sensations arising and passing away. Right. So, okay. So hopefully that was a lot to pack in. Yeah. So we'll just go through the eightfold path next week and continue on. Okay, so thank you for hanging in there with that. What I would like to do is, we're right up to 9 o'clock. If you need, I'm going to do a one-minute closing. If you need to leave, just go ahead and please don't feel self-conscious about it if, if you can't wait the minute, but uh, it'll be short. What I'd like to invite you to do is take a moment, if you weren't already doing it, and mindfully just feel, connect with whatever you experience in your body whatever you experience in your mind, in your, your heart, just the whole experience of being just sitting here now, whatever it is. So you, there may have been things that came up in the talk tonight that you liked or didn't like. You may be tired or you may feel good, just whatever your experience is. And please take a moment to also notice how you are relating to your experience. See if there can be a sense of allowing or letting be, not creating a problem on top of whatever's happening. You know, if, if your experience is unpleasant, can we just let that be and still be present with it and awake and connected with it, not uh, tuning it out? If there is a place in you where you can't let go or, or let be around it, then bring some acceptance to that place in you. Well, that, that's, that's how it is for you, so letting that be. Not creating a fight or a struggle with yourself. The best we can. You do the best you can. We're all just doing the best we can. So we want to have a sense of compassion for ourselves and be easy on ourselves, not beating ourselves up or creating. We don't want to create a suffering on this path intended to take us to an end of suffering. And then um, just to take a moment to reflect that you, all of us have, you have used your time wisely together. We've used our time wisely together this evening. You know, you could have been doing anything and, you know, it's late and we're tired and you chose to come here and to spend time meditating, um, reflect, listening to a talk and reflecting on Dharma teachings. 
how they can apply in your own life. And so perhaps even some appreciation for your, your good, sincere intention to do that. We've all used our time wisely. And every one of us. And when we do, it's of great benefit to ourselves, but of course it benefits everyone else that we come in contact with. If we're aiming ourselves in the direction of more of a kinder heart, not judging ourselves for how good or bad we think we are, but just knowing that we have a good intention, how we want to aim. And learning to quiet our minds, open our hearts. It, it, it's a benefit to all beings. And, and in that sense, it's, it is not possible. It is literally not possible to practice for yourself alone. You cannot do it. And so to end, we'll make, we'll, we'll make that a little more formal. It's called offering dedication of merit. So by merit, I just mean the good energy, the good qualities, your good intention, just the goodness, if you would. Or you could say the merit. May all, the, may all that goodness or merit of our time together this evening, may it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful. And may all beings everywhere come to an end of suffering. So thank you all for your practice this evening. Perhaps I'll see some of you to continue on next week.